It's in your son's name. Amen. All right, so again, we're going to be in Matthew 28 this morning. Particularly, uh, we're going to spend a lot of time in verses 18 through 20. And I'm going to back up just two verses uh, before and start in verse 16. So, Matthew 28, verse 16 reads, The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Have you guys ever seen a movie, or maybe read a book, or seen a piece of art, or heard music that has layers to it? Like, you, you understand it on one level, and that's, that's a right way to understand it. It's not a wrong way to understand it. But then as you think about the movie and watch it again, or you listen to the song and pay attention to the melody and the words and various things that are happening, it opens up something that's there that you didn't see before. For instance, there's a Spotify podcast called Dissect, where they take uh, albums made by hip-hop and R&B artists, and they break it all down to show you everything that's going on. It shows us references to other songs that I often don't, don't catch. Maybe it shows a double meaning, or, a, or gives a story that helps you to understand why the artist chose the specific words for a particular line. I find it really fascinating. And I don't want to be a spoiler, so I won't name any movies that have this, but maybe you've seen a movie where you understand it on one level, but then something happens at the end to make you realize there's an even deeper meaning to the movie, which gets you thinking about every little nuance in the movie and how it changes and becomes this fascinating concept. No matter the form of art, it's a really cool experience. Because while you are able to enjoy it at one level of understanding, it becomes even more fascinating and wonderful when a deeper understanding is unlocked. And that also happens outside of art as well. We realize that something may mean one thing in a situation, and again, it's correct in that situation, but it can mean something different in another situation, and again, have the same meaning and be correct, but it's, it's just different. Or maybe there's the same understanding, but it's applied in different ways. That's what's going on here in Matthew 28. Our section that we're in today is called the Great Commission. The Great Commission, because it's Jesus' final recorded command to his disciples. Now, you can picture the scene. We know that Jesus ascended back to the Father 40 days after he resurrected. 
So it's within, it's within that time frame. Think about a month's time frame. So it's only been within the past 40 days that Jesus has been crucified and has come back to life. Because of that, Israel, particularly Jerusalem, is still most likely buzzing with news about Jesus. Were you there? Did you, did you get to see it? Did you understand what's going on? After all, he was a polarizing figure during his earthly ministry, and then his arrival in Jerusalem caused quite the stir, with riots and a crowd shouting for his death. And you have to imagine as well, the, the disciples quickly fled. Actually, you don't really have to imagine it. The Bible tells us straight up, the disciples fled. They hid. They were gone. Now, we can imagine that they probably stayed hiding out in the shadows. Again, this is the guy that you've spent the past three years with. People know that you've been with him. Somebody recognized Peter as being with Jesus. They probably think they're next. They probably think that the crowd is going to come after them. But then they're told that Jesus is alive and they're to meet him in Galilee. So they, they go to this mountain in Galilee and they're greeted by the risen Jesus. Now, some of them respond in worship, some of them in doubt. That's a sermon for another day. I just want to make sure the scene is set for what Jesus is about to say. And think about it. Think about the scene. You've got this moment where they've been trembling in fear, and now the resurrected Jesus, the guy they've been following for the past three years, is standing in front of them. He could have taken this moment to say anything. He could have asked for fish dinner, like he does later on. He could have demanded that they all bow down and worship. He could have told them that they should have trusted him all along, that he knew what was going on. He could have even, like he does uh, with two disciples along the road, go back and explain everything from the beginning so that the disciples would fully understand. But he doesn't. He doesn't do any of that. Instead, he tells them what his resurrection has accomplished and then tells the disciples what they should do because of that. First, he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. This is important because Jesus is setting the stage for why they should listen to them or listen to him. He doesn't use his relationship with him. Remember, he just spent three years with him. He doesn't, he doesn't bank on that. He doesn't even bank to maybe the value that he's added to their lives, the teaching that he has given them. Instead, he, he points to his power and authority. He asserts that he is the one in charge. The Father has placed authority in his hands across all realms. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus has conquered sin and death, and now, because of that, carries power over it. And so, up front, he just reminds them who he is. I'm the guy in charge. I am the guy in charge. And then, because of that, because he's the guy in charge, he gives them the imperative, the command what to do with that information. And that is, he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, 
and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. When we come to this, a few questions should arise. I believe the first, if answered well, should actually take care of the rest of the questions. And that is, how do we make disciples? Or even, back it up before that, what is a disciple? Well, in basic terms, a disciple is someone who learns from and is therefore instructed by someone else. And thus they become a disciple of that person. Now it's deeper than just a teacher or um, someone who uh, just happens to tell you one thing or another. A better understanding for us might be the word apprentice. The word apprentice is a kind of synonym to the word disciple. Think about a doctor who studies underneath another doctor. They learn the craft the way that that doctor does it. They perform surgery with the same technique and learn the same understanding of the human body that the teaching doctor has and the way that it functions. This is true in many fields, such as in carpentry. And so a disciple of Jesus is someone who is an apprentice of Jesus. They want to imitate his life, to understand and obey his instructions, to embrace his manner of living, and particularly with Jesus, to trust him as Savior and as Redeemer. And so that is a disciple, it's someone who is an apprentice of Jesus. So then how do we go about making disciples? How do we make disciples? I believe that's answered in the next two things that Jesus says. That is, you, you baptize people, and then you teach them. The discipleship process involves sharing the gospel with people, seeing them become redeemed, baptizing them, and then teaching them to observe or obey what Jesus commanded. So discipleship encompasses the whole journey, from first hearing the gospel all the way to the day that we die. Now, over the past century, the main ways, or the main way that Christians have responded to this call comes about in a few different manners. Probably about a century ago, I think about during the Billy Graham era, so a little, little shorter than a century ago, there was a big emphasis on personal evangelism. A right emphasis to have. That's the first step in the whole discipleship process. If someone's going to be a disciple of Jesus, they first have to believe, right? And so the goal is to personally share the gospel as much as possible so that people can become disciples. Again, a really good thing that we should be doing. Unfortunately, such a big emphasis on evangelism with little emphasis on other things lets many people to either wash away in the faith or wash away from the faith or to, to stay shallow. There was no training for them. And so I think over the past 30 years, we've seen a response. Uh, the response has been to call people to both disciple others and to be discipled themselves. We've seen this play out in meeting up one-on-one -on -one with people, uh, normally at coffee shops, as we've seen. 
uh, and help, help people to learn what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's life on life. Again, these are both good, helpful responses to the call to make disciples. It is a good thing for us to want to be personally involved in this process by using our everyday, ordinary lives to make an extraordinary impact on the kingdom of God by sharing the gospel with those who aren't Christians and by helping teach other Christians what it means to follow Jesus. Those are important things that we should be incorporating into our life. However, there's something underlying both of these. There's another layer to this. That is, both of these are focused on on our individual and personal lives. It becomes really individualistic. The question becomes, how can you share the gospel and what disciples can you make? Again, great questions to ask, but I believe that there's something missing. There's another understanding in the Great Commission, something deeper that can help us respond to the Great Commission in all the ways that it calls us to do. And that is, the Great Commission is a call to plant new churches. The Great Commission is a call to plant new churches. And I say, Cody, how, how did you come up with that? Just willy-nilly decide to say that? Well, no, I think there's both internal evidence and there's external evidence. Think about it. As you look at the verse itself, it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptize them, and teach them. Think about being a disciple of Christ from the very beginning. When you become a Christian, you participate in baptism as Jesus commanded here. Why would you participate in baptism? It's so that you can personal, so that you can declare publicly what you have believed personally. In other words, you tell others that you are now a Christian and that your identity is with Jesus. Not only are you telling non-Christians this, but you're telling Christians this as well. It is a way of telling other Christians that you now identify with them and that they should hold you to this profession that you have made. And then think about teaching. How does, how does teaching take place? How do we learn from one another? Well, it, it happens with other Christians. Whether it's on Sunday morning or throughout the week with others, teaching takes place in community, otherwise known as the church. We are meant to be teaching each other, encouraging each other, and helping each other to follow Jesus in community so that we have others who are walking alongside of us. In other words, the whole process of discipleship takes place through a gathered body of Christians, also known as a church. So that's internal evidence for it. We also see external evidence that this is a call to plant churches. The Great Commission is a call to plant churches. We can see this from how the disciples responded to the Great Commission, to Jesus' command. Take a look at the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a one long book of the Holy Spirit's work in bringing people to know God and then form churches from it. 
In Acts 2, we read of Pentecost, where the disciples are empowered by the Spirit to preach the gospel in Jerusalem to people of many different languages. And it says that 3,000 people became Christians that day. Thus, the church of Jerusalem was born. In Acts 9, we read of Paul's drastic conversion, turning from a persecutor of Christians to a Christian himself. Then, right after that, we read that he stayed with Christians in Damascus for some time. Now, the word church isn't in there, but it's a community of Christians. And so, even if they may not have been organized into a church, the root, the seeds are there. In Acts 11, Barnabas is sent from the church that is formed in Jerusalem, based off of Pentecost, to the church in Antioch, which is a Greek city. So, it's moved from just among the Jews and now out to the rest of the world. And Barnabas recruits Paul to come with him, and they spend some time teaching at the church. In fact, Antioch is the place where they were first known as Christians. In Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas are called by the Holy Spirit to go and start new churches. We know that it's to start new churches because we read in the next chapter in Acts 14 that they not only preached the gospel, but it says that they appointed elders in every church. They were organizing churches. And during this time, during the time of the book of Acts, Paul writes letters primarily to churches. Not individual people for the most part, but instead churches helping to instruct them on how to live in light of the gospel. We can also see Paul's own mind and attitude toward the church in one of those letters. In Romans 15, verses 18 through 19, Paul writes, For I would not dare say anything except what Christ has accomplished through me by word and deed for the obedience of the Gentiles, by the power of miraculous signs and wonders, and by the power of God's Spirit. As a result, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. Illyricum. Ah, yeah, screwed that up. Notice that he says that he has fully proclaimed the gospel. The ESV says that he has fulfilled the ministry. Does this mean that Paul has preached the gospel to every single person in that region? If you take a look at the map during that time, it takes up most of the world as they knew it at the time. Has Paul preached the gospel to every single person in the known world at the time? Well, the answer, the answer is no. There's no way one man could have done that. Instead, we, we read from Acts that he started churches in those areas who would continue doing gospel ministry longer than he could. Thus, he knew a gospel presence would be present in all of those areas. And so for him to start new churches in those areas was to be able to say that he has fully proclaimed the gospel. And so not only do we see that the actions to which Jesus has called us should take place within the context of a church, we also see that the apostles thought that this was the appropriate response to Jesus' command in the Great Commission. Now, as always, there's a tension when you read the Bible and try to apply it in your life. 
there are some clear differences between the cultures within the Bible and the culture in which we live today. That's what can make Bible study difficult because we can't just read our own cultural narrative into the Bible, but we also can't just take everything necessarily black and white because it wasn't written in our culture. Not everything transfers perfectly to our culture. This is why Bible interpretation matters. And so I believe it would be natural to think that the call to plant churches was just for the original disciples. After all, when Jesus gave the command of the Great Commission, there was no church. There was a universal church, but there were no local churches. So it would seem, yeah, he was just telling them to go and plant churches because no churches had started yet. But, if you look around today, particularly in North America, you'll see churches everywhere. Drive down Route 1 and you'll see one at almost every stoplight or stop sign. There are churches that meet in church buildings, like us. There are churches that meet in schools. There are churches that meet in homes. So, naturally, the question follows. Do we really have a need to plant churches in 21st century America? Or was the call to plant churches just for those early disciples? Or maybe today just for places that are considered unreached? Well, the answer to that is no. There is still very much a need to start new churches in North America in our time. And I believe that there will always be a need. There are multiple reasons for this, but I'll give you three really quickly. Number one, every year in the U.S., more churches die than are started. The last estimate that, we, that I could find was from 2019, where LifeWay estimated, based on their research, that 3,000 churches were started, which is wonderful, and around 4,500, 4,500 closed forever. That's a net loss of 1,500 churches. And that's from 2019. Something happened in 2020 called COVID, which wrecked havoc on many churches across the U.S. And so we honestly, it's probably worse at this point. So even though we are blessed with a multitude of churches in ways that many parts of the world don't enjoy, this rate is currently declining. And again, the rate is probably steeper than what we last have on record. So first, every year in America, more churches close than start. Number two, not every church is a healthy church. Though we may drive down the road and see church building after church building, there is no guarantee that those churches are healthy. And by this, I don't mean that they maybe just teach some things that are slightly different from us. Instead, I may mean that they preach a message that is not the gospel of Jesus. That is not according to Scripture. And they may not even view Scripture in a godly way. And Possibly, even if they're not necessarily teaching heresy, if they're teaching a message that's biblically sound and is, is right, they may not be missionally minded. They may not have a desire to reach the community, or they may be disunified. In other words, they may be ineffective in actually proclaiming the gospel to the community around them. In fact, to correlate this to the previous point, that more churches close than start, 
Many churches tend to plateau at some point, and the first sign of this is that they become insular. They begin to see the community as a problem to complain about and not a people to be loved. And so, though there may be a church building that we see on every block, we can't guarantee that it, A, teaches the right things, or B, lives those right things out like they're supposed to. Finally, third, if every person in each community in the U.S. chose to go to church on a Sunday, say they all randomly just decided today's the day we're going to go to a church, there simply wouldn't be enough seats to seat them all. We could even think about this just within our area. If everyone on Fort Belvoir decided to go to church one day, there is not enough seats within this church, within the churches in this area, not just our church, but all the churches in this area, to seat them. In fact, particularly in a largely populated region like Northern Virginia, I don't even know if the local churches would be able to house a tenth of the population. So again, it's not necessarily just about butts and seats, but that is a reality. We just don't have enough churches in each area. And so, the question becomes, what are we going to do with this? The final command of Jesus, our King, our Lord, is to go and start new churches that can make more disciples of Jesus. So He's told us that, couple that with a massive need all around us for new churches to be started. And the question becomes, how do we respond? Well, I'm glad that you asked. Here is our response, the response for Pillar Church of Woodlawn. Today, we are setting a goal to plant a church by 2027. Again, we are setting a goal today to plant a church by 2027. Now, you may look around and say, really? Uh, we don't even fill up the sanctuary, Cody. And it feels like we have some pretty big needs ourselves. That's absolutely true. That is absolutely true. We are smaller, and we do have some pretty big needs ourselves. Here is my response to that. And please track with me the whole way through, because up front it may sound not thought out well. When Lyd and I were thinking about having a baby, we asked around, and we looked on the internet for other people's opinions about the best time to have a baby. And you know what the overwhelming response was? There really isn't a good time to have a baby. And if you keep waiting, waiting for the best time, you'll never have kids because you'll never feel ready. There will never be enough money to make account. You'll, never feel, you'll never, never feel mature enough. Now, obviously, there are some situations, some extreme situations that go outside of this. Right? If someone is caught up in heavy drug addiction, for example, or a really serious medical, medical condition, it would probably be unwise for them to have a baby. Now, in the same way, if we wait for the best time to plant a church, then we will never plant a church. Think about our particular situation. I mean, Pillar Church of Woodlawn, not General Church, Pillar Church of Woodlawn. We're a church that is made up of transient members who meet in a really old building. We're always going to have needs that should be addressed, 
people to minister to, a community to reach, a building to maintain, and members leaving and members joining. There's never going to be a time where we think, yeah, we don't have anything to do. Things have slowed down. Maybe let's plant a church. It's just not going to happen. Now, again, there are times when it's unwise, like if we are in massive critical debt or entirely unhealthy and divided, neither of which is true. And so today, we are holding ourselves accountable to Jesus' call. Uh, the saying, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail, holds true here. By setting a goal to plant a church in a certain year, it puts us in a position to take the necessary steps to see a new church planted. Now, before I share what those steps look like, which I will, I want to say that this is a goal. We are in no ways failures, failures if this plan doesn't come to fruition. Odds are, the odds are not in the favor of a plan going 100% correctly. Things will most likely get thrown our way in such a manner that this plan won't be exact, and that's okay. That's okay. Again, the idea behind setting a goal in a specific year is to give us something measurable and to help us start that process now instead of waiting for some day that will never come in the future. So, with that being said, here is our 4.5 5-year plan towards planting a new church. So, in 2024, uh, I tried to alliterate them with all P's because I'm not a good pastor if I can't figure out how to alliterate something. Um, and so, uh, in 2024, we are going to pray plan, and give, or purse. We are going to pray both as a church and pray individually. Now, what are we going to pray for? We're going to pray for a place, at least for the year of 2024, we're going to either pray for a place or a planter. Now, when the uh, process begins to plant a church, it, either, it starts with one of two things. Either you notice a particular area of need where a church needs to happen and you begin to look for a planter who can plant in that area. That is one option. Another option is when a planter arises that says, I have a desire to plant a church in so-and-so space and I just need to be equipped and supported to do so. And so, particularly in 2024, we're going to pray for a place or a planter. And ask for the Lord to reveal that to us. We're going to also ask for God's provision for the entire process. We're going to ask for His wisdom as we walk through this process. And we're going to ask for God's grace over the entire process. And so we're going to pray during our time of church planter of the week, during our Sunday service. Time will be dedicated towards praying towards a future church plant. We're also going to plan. That is, we're going to begin to prepare what it looks like to have a resident with us for a year. We're going to make a plan of what it looks like to equip that person to go and plant a church. And then purse, we're going to begin to save for residency. This is actually included as a line item in the budget. It wasn't necessarily a lot of money, but it was money towards this goal. So pray, plan, purse. 2025, next year, continue to pray, continue to give, 
And then we're going to begin to promote. Again, depending on if we start with a place or a planter as the Lord reveals, we're going to begin to either look for a planter to fulfill uh, planting in a place, or we're going to connect with a planter who already has a place in mind. Now, because of uh, the church that I have come from, uh, we have connections with this. Uh, I've already been asked, actually, if we'd be willing to take on a resident this year, and I said, no, (laughs) we're not ready for that right now. Um, But we do have connections to help us with that in the future. So promote. Uh, By that, I don't necessarily mean like put on Facebook, hey, you want to plant a church? Come to Pillar Church of Woodlawn. I mean, we'll connect with people who know other people and uh, can help. we can help with that, if that makes sense. 2026, again, pray. Purse, same things you've been doing before. And then planter, we will have a resident join us. Now, typically, this is for a year. Could be two years, whatever that may be, but the plan will be given up front. It won't just be uh, kind of out of nowhere. That will be discussed up front. And that resident will go through the plan that has been prepared, and that hits at head, heart, and hands. So teaching the knowledge needed behind planting a church, helping to cultivate the heart that is needed for ministry, and then hands actually participating in real ministry here. So the resident, uh, many of you, uh, or some of you may have been here when Jonathan Baggett was here, who is now planting Pillar Church of Fayetteville. When he spent time here, he wasn't removed from everybody. He was doing the work himself. That is actually most of residency, is just doing the work yourself. So 2026, the planter will join us. And in 2027, we will send out, Lord willing, a church plant. A group of people from here to start a new church. And in 2028 and beyond... Pray, purse, and really that should be support, but again, I wanted to stick with the alliteration, so partner. And we're going to partner with the church by continuing to support them whatever means possible. Whether that means sending like a short-term mission, mission team, sending some of our members to be with them for a particular amount of time, six months to a year or something like that. We will continue to partner with them uh, from there on out. And so at this point, my hope is that you can see the need for us to not just be tangentially involved in church planting, but to take on the task for ourselves. I also hope that you see that we're not just throwing ourselves out there randomly, but that we're taking wise baby steps towards that goal. In the meantime, you may be wondering how you can be involved. All right, this is great, Cody, but what does that mean for me? Well, here's three ways that you can be involved. First, you can individually pray. Now, it often sounds like a cliche. And people are like, yeah, if you, could just, if you could just pray. But I believe it's the most important aspect of this process. If a new church is going to be started, it is going to take the Lord giving it life and guiding the process all along the way. You think about somebody starting a new church in a community. No community really wants a new church to be there. Again, like us, they may say, there's already a church on every corner. Why do we need another one? And so it's going to take a group of people going to start a church in a place that most likely doesn't want one. It takes the Lord's work to see a church started. And so pray for wisdom for this church 
for the Lord's revelation of both a place and a planter and for His provision all along the way. So first and most importantly, you can pray. Second, you can give. You can give financially. Even now, you can contribute to our future church plant fund. On our website, you can go to the Give tab and you'll find a drop-down. Instead of giving to, uh, there's a uh, drop-down that says Pillar Tithes and Offerings. You can choose to give to Future Church Plant. There is a drop-down that says Future Church Plant. All donations given to that tab will go directly to the planting of a church in the future. And third, so first you can pray, second you can give, third you can go. Maybe the Lord is calling you to plant a church. Maybe you felt a particular interest and you don't know exactly where it's coming from. Uh, I, I can't necessarily guarantee what it is, but the Lord may be calling you to plant. If that's you, I'd love to have a conversation. It also means, as well, even if you don't necessarily feel like the Lord is calling you to be a lead planter, a church takes a group of people, a body. You can join in whatever way you feel gifted in. Personally, I'm excited for this opportunity for us. I know this church has been through the process before with Jonathan Baggett. I also know the odds are is that uh, the majority of us will, or weren't here when Jonathan was with us and may not be here uh, in the year 2027. I just know it's the nature of the military. However, I'm excited that at each stage of the process that everyone here can be involved in some form or manner. There's nothing that is more exciting than being able to participate in sending out a group of Christians to start a new work and then being able to check in and help that work as they continue on. And so today isn't just a presentation of a plan, but is a celebration of the fact that God invites us to participate in His work with Him, and is a moment to express eager anticipation that we will see Him act in all of His glory to start another church. And so as we close, I'm going to ask that you bow your heads, and I just want to give us some, some space just to be able to pray, to express this anticipation, and to ask the Lord for His favor on us as we embark on this journey. So I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. Lord, you are good, and you are God. You are the creator of the world, the author of the world, the sustainer of all that we know. Revelation tells us, tells us that you are the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Lord, you hold all things within your hand. Lord, it is, uh, it is best for us, not just, not just good for us, but it is best for us to be able to be satisfied in you and you alone, because you are, you are the best thing ever. Lord, within you are pleasures forevermore. So, Lord, as we think about what you have called us to do, what you have called all Christians to do, which is to participate in the work of seeing new churches started, 
Lord, we ask that you would first and foremost help us to be able to delight in you through this process. Lord, if we go to plant a church just to start another church out of duty, out of obligation, because you said so, Lord, we will find ourselves worn out. We'll find ourselves tired. Lord, and it won't, it may not be done, Lord. Instead, you've asked us to delight in you, and then out of that delight to help others to come to know you and delight in you and be satisfied in you. So, Lord, help us during this process, even though we may become weary, may become tired, to delight in you and to delight in others coming to know you. Where we ask for wisdom for us as we begin to prep and plan towards this church plant. Lord, we ask that you would help us to um, know what should be included, uh, Lord, in the residency plan. That you would just give us wisdom as we continue to think about the future, as we think about the, the big things, as we think about the small things and nitty-gritty things. Lord, help us, Lord, give us your wisdom. We don't want it to be a business class, Lord. We want it to be a place where people can know you, Lord, and know what it means to pastor in your way, not our way. Lord, we ask that you would sustain us, Lord, through this process, that you would provide for us with, with people, with either a planter or a place, with a team to start a church. Lord, we ask that you would provide financially throughout this entire process. And Lord, if there is anyone in the room, Lord, who you feel that you are calling to start a church, Lord, I ask, would you make it abundantly clear to them what you are calling them to do? Remind them, Lord, that you don't call the equipped, Lord, but that you equip the called. Lord, it is your work to start a new church. Help us to rely on you. Lord, again, we are thankful that you've given us the privilege to be able to, to participate in your work of seeing people redeemed and renewed. You could have chosen to do it in whatever way you saw fit, and instead you chose us to be plan A. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just help us to delight in you, delight in the fact that you've called us to this, Lord, and just be able to enjoy you throughout the entire process. Lord, we love you. We praise you and we ask these things in your son's name.